Welcome to the latest podcast from the London Institute of Banking and Finance, lifelong partners for financial education. Learn more about our qualifications at www.libf.ac.uk. Good evening, everybody, and a very warm welcome to uh, tonight's uh, Future Leaders event. Before we start, please can I ask you to kindly uh, make sure your mobile phones are turned off so we don't get any bleeping in the middle of it. Uh, my name's Roy Budget. I'm president of the LIBF uh, London and Southeast Committee, and I'm particularly pleased to welcome Lynn Lockhead this evening to talk to us about the role of the corporate treasurer. Uh, Lynn graduated from Strathclyde University with a finance degree and went into the finance graduate program with Scottish Power in Glasgow. Uh, where she did various roles before actually entering the Treasury team at Scottish Power. She then went to Tesco and did various roles in their Treasury team, including a stint in Hong Kong, where she became the Assistant Treasurer of Asia, before joining the John Lewis Partnership in 2015, where she is Assistant Group Treasurer. In addition to an AMCT, she also has an AMCA. Please give a warm welcome to Lynn Lockhead. Thank you, Roy, for that very kind introduction. Um, just making sure everyone can hear me okay. Whether or not you understand me is another thing. Apparently, the budget didn't stretch to subtitles, so <laughs> hopefully the Scottish accent is not too strong. So, um, over the next half hour, I'd like to give you an overview of Treasury and the role of the corporate treasurer and how it's evolved over time. And I'll talk a little bit at the end about my career path into Treasury and hopefully for those in the room, or quite a few of you are starting out in their careers, you might come away with um, a little bit of advice that will stand you in good stead, regardless if you go into banking, Treasury or some other profession. So there will be time for questions at the end. Um, I hear there's some wine afterwards, so like a true Scott, I'll be hanging around for a while. Um, and if you prefer to ask me questions face to face, then you can do that. So. Very broadly, I would describe corporate treasury as the financial heartbeat of a company. Treasurers are not accountants, and always remember that if you're ever dealing with a treasurer. Treasury is the exciting side of finance. I mean, have you ever seen the Wolf of Wall Street? I rest my case. In all seriousness, what you this is what you should expect when you walk into a corporate treasury department. And this is actually my senior analyst on the phone hedging against commodity risk. Note the cuddly toy on top of his screen, the accounting manual, but be careful he's not an accountant, and calculator. So at John Lewis, we still use calculators, but don't worry, we do have Excel spreadsheets too. So what does corporate treasury do? Well, the core part of treasury involves the management of money and financial risks in a business. And if we just take a moment to explore some of those core elements, unfortunately we don't have enough time this evening to go into a lot of the technical detail, but what I would like to do is just give you a little flavour of each. So cash and liquidity management, if there was only one objective of Treasury, it's to ensure the business has the money it needs to meet its day-to-day -day obligations, kind of much like you would run your own finances, but on a much larger scale. Remember, Cash is king, liquidity is queen, and without cash, companies fail, even profitable ones. So a treasurer's job is to make sure the company has the cash in the right place at the right time. 
And actually, treasurers must also decide how best to invest surplus cash. So most treasury teams will have some sort of formal or informal investment strategy, especially in today's low interest rate environment, when everyone is hunting for yield, although not at any cost. So whilst treasurers will seek to maximise the yield on cash surpluses, the primary requirement is for security and liquidity. And in fact, I remember back to when I was studying for my ACT exams and we were always told the acronym SLY, which was security, liquidity, yield, and you should always do it in that order. So committed credit facilities from relationship banks also provide valuable backup liquidity, as long as we're not in the middle of a financial crisis, that is. Funding. So treasurers are also responsible for funding company. And let's take uh, John Lewis as an example. If we wanted to build a new distribution centre and it's going to cost us £100 million, we don't have enough cash today to do that. So how should we finance it? Will we issue a bond? Will we consider a private placement? Or will we take a bank loan? Or what about borrowing from partners and customers? And we actually did that in 2011 when we issued a retail bond. So whereby it's purchased by retail investors, i.e. you and I, as opposed to your normal institutional investors like BlackRock and M&G. And actually we paid our customers and partners interest on that bond, not only in the form of cash, but we also gave them vouchers to spend in John Lewis and Waitrose. So therefore you're kind of building on the customer brand, you're lowering the effective interest rate on the bond. And actually... Hotel Chocolat went one step further and they didn't issue, they didn't pay any cash interest on their retail bond, they paid it all in chocolate. We've seen some European companies this year managing to issue bonds with negative yield to maturity. That is when an investor has to pay you the privilege for lending his money. But that discussion I think is for another day. So we move on to risk management. A key part of the treasurer's role is to identify the financial risks facing their business, assess the potential impacts of those risks and recommend and implement risk reduction strategies such as hedging. Let's just consider a couple of examples. Now we look at market risk and specifically currency risk. We take a UK-based retailer, for example, which sources goods from international suppliers. So maybe we agree in 18 months' time to buy $50 million worth of goods from a supplier in China. So our business will ask us, well, when's the best time to buy these dollars? Is it now or is it in the day the payment's due? If we want certainty for budgeting reasons, maybe we buy them all today. Or if we think the pound's going to strengthen, maybe we recommend we'll buy some now and we'll buy 50% now and 50% in six months' time. And I'm making a disclaimer there, I'm not making any predictions about where the pound's going to go, it's just a scenario. And then if we also consider another aspect of um, market risk, so what about interest rate risk? So as a company, we'll have bonds, we might have a fixed rate of interest on that bond, we might have some floating rate debt. And so as a treasurer, we maybe want to model what will happen if there's a 3% increase in interest rates. Can we afford the interest payments? Can we look internally within the business to see if there's any natural hedge? So perhaps we've got a big cash pile and we're placing that on deposit. So if interest rates go up, we'll get increased interest income, which will offset. If there's no natural hedge within the business, 
and we're worried about interest rates increasing above current market expectations. Maybe we'll think about entering into an interest rate swap. don't know if you've learned about that in your studies, but effectively what that does is a type of derivative that swaps interest from fixed to floating vice versa. Much like if you're considering a mortgage, um, if you're going to fix your payments for the next five years or you're happy to take the risk of increasing interest rates. And then another, another risk that we might deal with, credit risk. So that's become increasingly important since the financial crisis. If we've got surplus cash and we want to place, say, 100 million in deposit with one of our banks, how do we know that that bank isn't going to disappear overnight? Well, we don't. If the financial crisis has taught us anything, it's to expect the unexpected. So we need to continuously monitor the credit worthiness of the bank and we might do that a number of ways, such as looking at credit ratings, looking at credit default swaps and liquidity ratios. We'll determine the riskiness of the counterparty and then we'll set a credit limit accordingly, which we do not breach. And then moving away from risk management and onto bank relationships, which I'm sure you'll be interested to hear about. So as a treasurer, you need to think about how many banks you need. You need to think about the different services that the banks offer. And then you have to think about the geographical spread of your banks. Maybe you want some banks in the UK, some from America, Nordic region, maybe Japan, China. And you have to have a think about how you want to manage that bank relationships. Now, actually, I've seen it done very different ways um, from the different companies I've worked for, very opposite ends of the spectrum. Some treasurers have a very transactional approach to bank relationships, i.e. they just want to execute every transaction at the lowest possible price. They'll go out to all their banks and they'll say, who can give me this the cheapest? Don't expect that bank or rely on that bank to be there for you in a time of a crisis, rightly so. And I've seen other treasurers look at it more as a partnership. It's a long-term relationship. Let's have open and honest conversations with our banking group. Let's tell them our priorities. Let's share with them as much as we can our strategy. Let's see where we can help each other. And while we're on bank relationships, I can't resist just raising one little thing that as a treasurer does irritate me. And that is the constant chase for ancillary business. So what happens is normally a bank will offer a commitment up, say 60 million over the course of five years, syndicated facility, bilat facility. But what they do is they offer these facilities fair to say, very competitive pricing, doesn't cover their cost, doesn't generate any return. So what we all spend the next five years of doing this ancillary dance, where they're all pitching for business, they all want to take part in issuing the bond, they want more FX flows. So my only plea is just charge the correct price for the committed facility in the first place. <laughs> I promise that's the only gripe I'll have this evening. But you know, maintaining bank relationships, it's, it's becoming harder for both sides because there's never-ending banking regulations, which is making capital scarce and more expensive. Some banks are actually pulling out of relationships altogether, and that's causing another headache for treasurers. And that uh, slide there basically is really just a summary of, of what we've discussed. I mean, it's also worth touching on uh, what else corporate treasurers might do, because there we've just covered the sort of core parts of treasury, but it's really common 
um, for treasurers to also be involved in corporate finance. In fact, recently the team at John Lewis has, has went from treasury to corporate finance and what we might there look at is mergers and acquisitions, not common for the partnership, but you never know in future. Debt restructuring, maybe even calculating the weighted average cost of capital. But not only that, we have to measure the gap between that and the return on invested capital to make sure we are adding value and not destroying it. Debt investor relations is actually part of my role at John Lewis, so I'm also responsible for maintaining the relationship and communicating with our bondholders and keeping them happy and maintaining the bank relationships. And you can ask Roy later if I'm doing a good job on that. Pension strategy and negotiation. So actually we're, we're quite unusual at John Lewis and um, when I was at Tesco before as well, we had an open defined benefit scheme. And actually that's, you know, it's a very big risk to have an open defined benefit scheme at the moment. We have a pension deficit and we have to consider, you know, what if real interest rates plummet and the pension deficit doubles? Can the company afford the payments? Tesco have actually just reported their half-year results. I noticed and I read with interest that their accounting pension deficit more than halved from $6.6 billion to $2.9 billion due to changes in assumptions about mortality rates and expected future returns. Does that affect your risk management or financial wizardry? I'm, I'm really not sure. And then also on property side of things, uh, a lot of companies, if they have a large property's portfolio, some of that will be freehold and some of it will be leasehold. And actually the leasehold property is held off balance sheet, although we very much consider it as part of our total indebtedness. So if you are a company that has a large component of the total debt and operating leases, it does make sense that Treasury are involved in or at least consulted in the terms of those operating leases and the impact it has on the financial risk profile of the company. Increasingly, working capital, financial supply chain is coming under the remit of the treasurer and doesn't look like that's going away anytime soon. And you'll quite often find some treasurers responsible for tax and insurance. And actually, that last bullet point there, um, strategic advisor to finance director and the board is a nice segue into the evolving role of the corporate treasurer. So historically, treasury might have been viewed as a sort of back office support function and safe to say it has evolved into a business partnering role, helping to shape strategic decision making. Although the role of the corporate treasurer started to change decades ago with the deregulation of the financial markets back in the 80s, the global financial crisis has undoubtedly had a significant impact on the corporate treasurer in terms of responsibilities and expectations. Technology has played a major part too. Prior to the financial crisis, and by the way, if I'm, I'm sure most people in the room tonight will know about the financial crisis, but if you haven't, please watch The Big Short. It's absolutely fantastic. And if anything else, you've got Margot Robbie in a bubble bath. So, um, but prior to the financial crisis, there was easy availability uh, of cash for many corporates. And then during the financial crisis, what happened was some sectors of the market ceased to function. We experienced increasing counterparty credit risks, banks going bust overnight. Some committed facilities were pulled, commercial paper markets dried up, and actually it became very difficult to hedge foreign exchange and interest rate exposures for certain emerging markets. Managing liquidity and financial risk became critical for the survival of many businesses during the financial crisis. And in a way, if you like, Treasury was sort of thrust into the corporate spotlight. And there was a lot more focus on Treasury by the senior leadership team and the board. And at the end of it all, 
you know, Treasury was no longer viewed as a function for cash management and funding. Treasury was, and now is, a strategic business partner, not only securing liquidity and understanding the true risk profile of the business, but the Treasurer is now much more involved in the management of the company and in some ways has become a business leader instead of an administrator. In fact, a recent survey by the Association for Financial Professionals found that 37% of treasurers are members of their executive committees or boards. So I'll fast forward to today with the continued increase in geopolitical risks and uncertainty. I'll try my best not to mention Trump, Brexit or North Korea for that matter. But I think it's fair to say that the significance of the corporate treasurer has never been more crucial. And technology has actually also played a really large part in the evolution of Treasury. Now, I remember when I started my career at Scottish Power, we did the daily cash management activity with pencil and a bit of paper, and we actually picked up the telephone to execute FX deals. We spoke to our banks back then, and that was only 10 years ago. We now have online trading platforms. We've got very powerful Treasury management systems with very sophisticated risk modules. We have automation, we've got straight through processing. And I guess what slide eight here is demonstrating is that without technology and automation, too much of Treasury's time is spent on transaction execution, processing and admin. But actually the use of technology and automation has helped free up Treasury's time to do more of the value add stuff, more of the strategic business initiatives. The recent, uh, the future, yeah, and the recent advances in technology are astounding. I'm by no means an expert in this area. I heard a few of you in the audience might be. Um, but I've recently become slightly fascinated by it. So, you know, looking wider than just Treasury, it's clear that technology is having and will continue to have a massive impact on our daily lives. You'll have heard the buzzwords like blockchain, Bitcoin, robotics, artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things. And I guess let's just take a few moments to explore the wider impact of technology on financial services and what automation might mean for our future. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are undoubtedly a disruptive economic innovation that have the potential to change how banks and financial institutions operate. As treasurers, we need to ask ourselves, should we accept payment Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies what are the risks? What are the opportunities? And if we look at blockchain, the technology sitting behind Bitcoin, I mean, today nearly every single bank has a blockchain strategy. The main areas of focus are cross-border payments, correspondent banking, trade finance, ultimately with the aim of making processes quicker, cheaper, more efficient, more secure and transparent. And although blockchain is used little in financial services today, at least on a commercial scale, it is only a matter of time before that changes. According to PwC, 1.4 billion US dollars was invested in blockchain startups in 2016. We've seen some recent practical applications of blockchain technology, particularly in Australian banks, where ANZ and Westpac have successfully used blockchain instead of paper for bank guarantees and commercial property leasing. Robotics and artificial intelligence are successfully being used across many organisations to carry out repetitive and automated tasks. We've seen algorithmic trading adopted in banks worldwide. 
So looking ahead, will our jobs be safe from robots? In March, PwC released its economic outlook, suggesting almost a third of jobs in the financial and insurance sector could be obsolete due to advances in automation and artificial intelligence. A recent McKinsey study found that about 30% of tasks and 60% of occupations could be computerised. And last year, the Bank of England's chief economist predicted 80 million US and 15 million UK jobs might be taken over by robots. All sounds pretty doom and gloom. But automation should boost productivity and increase wealth, at least in the short to medium term. So which jobs will be safe? Jobs that involve genuine creativity, such as being an artist, a scientist, developing a new business or financial strategy. Occupations that involve building complex relationships with people. And jobs that are highly unpredictable. But that being said, machines are already doing what we thought only humans would be. They're composing original music and they're beating professional players at complex board games. So it's very hard to predict what will happen in 20 years' time, which makes long-term career planning quite difficult. So for those of you in the room that are starting out in your careers, good luck. So just talk a little bit then about my career path. I mean, hopefully that has given you a bit of a flavour for what corporate treasurers do the evolving role of Treasury, the impact of technology, not only in Treasury but in financial services, what it might mean for future. And then, um, just if I can give you a little bit of a story of my career path and maybe share a few career top tips along the way. So I actually joined, um, when I was creating this slide and thinking back, it was 18 years ago I joined Strathclyde Uni. I know I don't look old enough, but unfortunately I am. We don't get a lot of sun up in Scotland, you see, hence the lack of wrinkles. But, um, you know, I was only 16 when I, when I went to university. In hindsight, that was uh, very young, but I felt ready. I should clarify, I wasn't some sort of child genius. It just so happens that in Scotland, the way the, the higher education system works, you can go a little bit younger. To be honest, I actually I didn't really know what I wanted to study at that time. I ended up going to university through clearing, just picked math, stats and finance because it was one of the courses that was available. And, you know, during my first year at university, I discovered that I really enjoyed finance and economics, maths and stats, not so much. So I dropped them, actually. And to, to those of you that are just starting out at university, I guess the point of that is if you're really not enjoying something, like change it. It's never too late to change course. Although when I was at uni, um, I wasn't paying £6,000 a year. So <laughs> maybe easier said than done. And when I left uni, I decided oh, I'm still a little bit young to get a serious job. I'd really love to go travelling. And actually what I did was I, I worked for a year and saved up a load of money. And I went off around the world for six months on my own. And what a fabulous six months that was. I mean, parents will probably kill me, but I highly recommend travelling at some point or several points in your career. And it's so cliche to say, oh, it broadens the mind. But do you know what it did? It, it equipped me with all sorts of skills that you're transferable into the workplace budgeting, problem solving, adapting to change, being resilient, building relationships with new people, communication skills, to name a few. So if anyone's sitting here wondering if they should go travelling, do it. And then once I came back from travelling, I joined Scottish Power on their finance graduate programme. And actually that was great because it was a two-year programme with rotations every three to six months. And the beauty of that is, if like me, you still don't really know if you want to specialise or what you want to do, 
really gives you a lovely flavour of each area. And I did, um, during my time there, I did tax, did external reporting, did risk management, did internal audit, and then treasury. And actually, I love treasury. Strangely enough, I also loved internal audit. But I realised that I didn't like the disappointment on people's faces when I issued them with red audit reports. And I thought, I really don't want to make a career out of people either, you know, hating me or being fearful of me. So treasury it was. And I'm often asked, well, how did you, you know, how did you, what attracted you to treasury? And actually, in the beginning, I'm afraid to say it was, it was fairly superficial. On my first day in Treasury, I was asked to sit with the front office team. And now these are the guys that are the Treasury dealers. These are the ones that are phoning up and doing the, um, you're placing deposits, executing the FX deals. And so I was sitting shadowing this front office dealer on, on day one. And she phoned up and did like a, a deposit for £60 million. Pounds, and then did a few hundred million of FX trades just like that. And I was actually really in awe of the sums involved. And then later on that day, we went over to Harvey Nicks in Edinburgh to have a very nice lunch with one of our relationship banks. I had some vintage champagne and I tried caviar for the first time in my life. Now, bearing in mind, I grew up in a very rough part of Glasgow. Well, that was me. I was in. I was hooked. And so I do remember phoning my mum that night at the end of my first day, excitedly telling my story of treasury. I'm not sure if she was happy, disappointed, or probably a mixture of both. Um, and, you know, really in the space of a couple of years, uh, I, I grew to love Treasury and, and, and all the different aspects of it. And I worked my way up to be the, the front office Treasury manager. And I had three people reporting into me. When you're in your, you know, and when I was offered that role of front office Treasury manager, I was in my mid-twenties at the time, and I was managing people at the company who were a lot older than me, and I've been there for quite a long time, can actually be quite daunting. But if you're ever faced with a situation like that, I'd really just say push yourself to do it. Do things that make you feel uncomfortable and nervous, because I think without that, we would never really move forward. And actually, you know, it worked out quite well because I discovered my love for managing and leading people, uh, and they seemed to quite enjoy it too. So then I studied for my... Um, during, when I, during my time at Scottish Power, I studied for SEMA, which my husband has delight in telling me is not a proper accountancy qualification, but harsh. And then um, I also studied from the, my exams with the Association of Corporate Treasurers. Now, I know some bankers uh, take these exams as well. And actually, because I had sat my accountancy exams, it wasn't really that painful. I only had to do an extra year and three more exams. I had loads of exemptions. And, you know, continuous learning is so important. It doesn't always have to be in the form of professional exams. You can come through on-the-job training or attending forums or even online webinars. So it doesn't have to always be professional development, but continuous learning is important. I left Scottish Power in 2011 with a very heavy heart because um, I grew to love the people in the team and I really loved what I was doing. And actually, by the way, working in a great team and loving your job is a very rare combination, I've, I've since realised. And it's not something you should ever walk away easily from. But, you know, Scottish Power actually got taken over by a much larger Spanish utility, Iberdrola. And so a lot of the interesting and exciting treasury work was kind of moving out to Spain. So I decided, well, now it's time to move on. And I'd always loved London, always loved it. So I um, applied for a role at Tesco. And I got that and moved down in the summer of 2011. And actually, when you're in your late 20s and you move country, it's quite a daunting thing because all your friends and family, your whole life is back in that country there. 
but I decided, you know, the time was right for me to go. Uh, Tesco were the third largest retailer. They were very international. And actually, you know, I worked there for over a year. And I must admit, well, the work was very varied and interesting. The culture at Tesco was extremely different to that of a utility. There was, at the time, it was going through a bit of disruption. There was a lot of staff turnover in the team. The cult, um, and so I just decided, you know what, I, I'm not enjoying this. And if I give you one bit of advice, if you're really miserable where you are, if you're really not enjoying something and you've tried to make the change, as members as human beings, we do have choices, especially talented individuals. So if you try to enact that change within your corporate, within the culture, the team, it doesn't work. If you're really not enjoying what you do, life's too short, so change it. And I, and I did exactly that. And just as I made the decision to leave Tesco, an opportunity to come up to go and work out in Hong Kong as their assistant treasurer. Now, on the one hand, this was a fantastic opportunity because it was going to be my first proper strategic role. But on the other, it was actually very inconvenient for personal reasons. So I'd not long moved to London, met a guy that was living in Glasgow. He'd just given up his life in Glasgow to move to London to be with me. And you can imagine how that conversation went. So, you know, thank you so much for moving to London. How about Hong Kong? I think it was... <laughs> it worked out okay in the end because we're married now. But, you know, <laughs> Hong Kong was a fantastic experience, both professionally and personally. And actually, in my role, I managed to travel to South Korea, to Malaysia, to Thailand. And I was a treasury advisor to local teams. Living abroad is a challenging experience but I would highly recommend it if you ever get the chance. You have to adapt to a new culture and a new way of life. Immersing yourself in a foreign environment requires flexibility and determination. And that might not be easy at the beginning, but it is a great life lesson. You'll find yourself becoming more independent. You'll develop your skill set and ultimately more career opportunities should present themselves. In fact, my husband was recently shortlisted for a job and one of the reasons was because he had Hong Kong in his CV and his employer really felt it made him stand out from others. So after 18 months in Hong Kong, I moved back uh, to take up the role of Head of Treasury Europe. I was offered a promotion back in, based in London. But actually, Tesco was going through a massive restructure at the time and they wanted to move their operations out to Welling Garden. And I really wanted to stay in London. So I applied for voluntary redundancy. And one thing I would say to you guys in the room tonight is don't be afraid of redundancy it's almost guaranteed to happen to you at some point, if not several points in your career. Don't take redundancy personally. It's not you that's been made the redundant, it's the role. And actually, uh, I understand it can be a very worrying time for people, especially if you've got families and commitments, but there's also opportunity in it. I've known people who have retaken their redundancy payment and they've started their own business. They've used it to retrain, maybe take a different career path. And for me, myself, it, it helped me go on the London property ladder, which is almost impossible to do. So it's just a little watch out. Don't, don't be scared of redundancy. It will happen. Um, you know, luck would have it that uh, jo uh, John Lewis Partnership were looking for Deputy Head of Treasury. And actually, I previously worked for the Treasurer in Tesco, and I'd done a really good job. And I think, you know, that, that definitely follows you. If you work hard for someone, you do a good job you might end up working for them again later on in life or getting another role because you have that contact. And if I reflect back on, just as we come to the end of the presentation, if I just reflect on what has allowed me to progress to Deputy Head of Treasury, um, 
saying yes to opportunities that made me nervous, doing a very good job of the role that I'm in and not always being so concerned about your next move. Don't know how many times I've had graduates start recently, the partnership of like, right, I'm in. I want to be FD by the time I'm 35 and you're just a small stepping stone on my way there. So that, don't, <laughs> that doesn't stand you in very good stead. Um, obviously have a plan, think big, but don't be so concerned if the path that gets you there isn't linear. It will take you in all different directions. Just enjoy it. Being resilient, absolutely. Embracing change, continuous self-learning, seeking continuous improvement. And actually, to be honest, just being a decent human being goes a long way. Having a high level of emotional intelligence does, does help as well. And actually, what I found that really helped me on my career is well, official mentorship, which sort of turned into unofficial sponsorship. And there will be official mentorship programs around when you go into the workplace, and I highly encourage you to, to take part in those. So what does the future hold? Well, I think it's a very interesting time to be a treasurer or in banking for that matter. It's fair to say the significance of the corporate treasurer has never been more crucial and I can't see that changing anytime soon. And although I could envisage being in treasury in 20 years time, I'm just not sure where I'll end up. But I'll look forward to whatever path takes me there. And you never know what, maybe the robots will have taken over by then and we'll all be enjoying our universal basic income. That really brings me to the end of the session, which hopefully has given some food for thought. And I just realised I didn't point out uh, the fact about retiring at 70. So my first day at university, I was in a lecture theatre and we were getting introduced into the university and the lecturer said, welcome everyone. The next sentence he said was, you do realise you'll all be working till you're at least 70. And at that time we were horrified. But I think for you guys it might be 80 or 90, unless you make your millions in banking. Thank you for listening. You can find out more information about attending our talks and events at www.livf.ac.uk forward slash events. If you want to get involved, contact us at podcast at livf.ac.uk.